Before we get to uh, the sermon today, I do want to say also um, this Sunday is Scott and Julia Vesey's last Sunday with us. Um, as uh, th- I thought someone was starting to clap. I'm like, well, this is not the time, guys. Um, uh, but um, you've been a blessing, and uh, we're so grateful for you. Scott has taken a position in Texas close to his beloved um, Baylor Bears, and so uh, that's not why. Um, it's a blessing that um, he's, he's gotten this position. And so uh, I want to pray for you guys and, uh, and just ask the Lord to bless and uh, you going out, but um, we're grateful for you. Um, but let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, thank you so much. You're good. And your grace is revealed in so many ways, um, so often ways that we don't even um, notice or don't uh, acknowledge. Uh, But one of the ways that we do notice is the gifts you give us, um, specifically through people. And Lord, we thank you for Scott and Julia. Thank you for the blessing that they have been to this body, uh, the the friendships, the relationships that have been built, the encouragement that they have uh, been to many. And Lord, I ask that you would bless them as they go uh, out, as they move this week. I pray that you would um, bless every single part of Um, the tedious part of moving, but also, Lord, as they arrive and um, settle into a new place and into a new position and into life there, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through them, that you would use them there uh, within a body of believers in ways, uh, Lord, that just bring honor to Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, we are uh, this morning looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, so go ahead and turn there, please. Um, So looking forward to this text as well as those that follow it. It is a joy to be in Galatians chapter 5. I truly hope that this series has been and continues uh, to be a help for all of us, that, that we are formed more and more into the image of Jesus as a body. And so let's look at the text and work through it. If you're able to stand, please do so and follow along as I read Galatians 5, beginning with verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray again. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we're grateful. We're grateful for how you guide us and help us through it. And so please do that in this time, Lord. Please speak through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In verse 2 there, Paul is uh, drawing again from his position as apostle of Jesus. 
He's saying, look, or listen, or behold, it is, it's me, Paul. He's issuing a warning to these Galatians. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, this is a massive statement that he makes there in verse 2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You could read that as, if you get circumcised, you will lose any saving benefit that comes from Christ. So what does Paul mean by this? Would it possibly mean that Christ would be of no advantage to them? We start with the first part where he says, if you accept circumcision, does Paul mean that if they get circumcised, then Christ will be of no advantage to them? And if he means that, Does he mean then that if anyone, even now, gets circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to them? Well, if we jump ahead to verse 6, we see that Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. And so we know that for Paul, neither matters as it relates to gospel and salvation. So what's he addressing here? What he's he's addressing here in verse 2 is their reason. Their reason for getting circumcised. If the Galatians go on and are circumcised based on what the rival teachers have been teaching to them, what they've been saying to them, then they're making a confession through that. Whether they realize it or not. Whether they realize the depth of what they're doing or not, they're saying that Christ is not sufficient. Why would it mean that? Their reason for circumcision would be that they believe circumcision is necessary to be a part of Abraham's family, to be a part of God's family, to be a true child of God. That to truly be accepted by God, you have to follow the Mosaic law. But that isn't the gospel. That's not what Paul had preached to them, not not what they had believed when he preached to them in Galatia. The, The point here is so important because Paul is clearly saying here that this isn't simply a difference of opinion. You believe your way and I believe mine. Now that's, he's saying the opposite of that. If God sent His Son as the way, the truth, and the life, and He says that about Himself in John 14, if God does that and then we say, well, there's also this important aspect of salvation, whether it's circumcision or following the Mosaic Law or whatever else we might fill in the blank there with, then we really don't believe the gospel. We really don't believe that Jesus is enough. Jesus plus something else is not the gospel. If you add Jesus to your other beliefs, you haven't really accepted or believed 
Jesus because He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So similar to what Paul writes in Galatians 2.21, where he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If a right standing before God came through the law, came through obedience to the law, then Christ's coming was useless. Here in chapter 5, if they confess their faith in Moses through circumcision, then Christ has no value to them. Continues in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He's emphasizing this point further. If they choose circumcision as their hope for salvation, then they're obligated to the entire law of Moses. You, you can't just pick and choose, Paul's saying. Embracing the law means that one must assume the entire law. And that means eliminating Christ. Those who submit to circumcision must keep the entire law perfectly in order to be accepted. You can't just observe some or part of the law. James says the same thing from a different perspective in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Of all of it, he's saying. And Paul's saying it would be fruitless because it requires total obedience. And that's not possible. Really, if they choose the law, it's this horrible misunderstanding of gospel truth. And it has awful resort, results, Paul is saying. They don't understand what the law was supposed to do if they submit circumcision. They're going to be making this decision to live under this inferior covenant that was always meant to point to Christ as the fulfillment of it. So it goes on in verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now this is difficult. Imagine, if possible, how hard this would be to hear to anyone receiving this letter whose heart is open to truth. So we, we have to ask here, does Paul mean that these Galatian believers have lost their salvation or will lose their salvation? And that's a very important question. One that we ought to not just answer quickly or without much thought. And the truth is there's differing opinions on this. Different understandings of this. And maybe even in this room there are some of you who, who uh, believe you absolutely cannot lose your salvation once you are in Christ. 
And then some of you who believe you definitely can lose your salvation. So which is true? I believe that the evidence of Scripture is that we cannot lose our salvation if we are in Christ. Paul's not saying here that any true believers in Galatia will fall away from grace. But let's not just say that. Let's look at why. A few texts that help us in this. We looked, we looked at um, this text a few weeks ago, but it's important for this discussion in John 10, 27 through 30. I'll read it for you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So there Jesus is saying that no one can snatch you from His hand or the Father's hand, that there's security. You're safe if you are a sheep. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes to the Romans, beginning with verse 28 through verse 39. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God of Christ Jesus, our Lord. God justifies and He will glorify those He justifies. And there's security in our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul writes, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless, In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom 
you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that text is important to this discussion because Paul's writing to a church that is nothing close to perfect. Corinth is a mess. But where does he say that their assurance lies? With Christ, with God, who is faithful to us. Both 2 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 1, they tell us that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. And then Jude 24 and 25 that says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, I take from that and other texts that those who are in Christ, those who have trusted in Him for salvation, are saved and are secure in that salvation forevermore. But saying that, we have to pause. Because Paul really does write here that they are severed from Christ and fallen from grace. That's what it actually says. And so if you believe as I do that we have assurance of salvation and that those who are saved will persevere because of God's grace, then we need to consider the weight of the verses that warn us That they're there for a reason. Verses like this one in Galatians 5 and and 1 Corinthians 9.27 where Paul says of himself, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Or Hebrews 6.4-6 For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So what do we do with those warnings? I would answer that, that we let Scripture interpret Scripture. In 1 John 2.19, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I think what Scripture teaches us is that those who fall away demonstrate that they didn't truly believe and belong to God. They're examples of the seed that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. The seed that fell on rocky ground and the seed that fell on thorny ground where where Jesus says at first it grows up and it produces fruit and it looks good. It looks like 
there are roots and that it's nourished by the seed. And yet, as soon as the cares of the world or trouble comes into their life, they fall away. They didn't really truly believe that Christ is all. Thomas Schreiner is helpful here as it relates to Galatians 5.4 and other warning texts like it. He says, I would argue that the warnings are the means God uses to preserve the faith of those whom He has chosen. God uses the severity of the warnings to remind believers of the need to keep trusting God until the end. And so here in Galatians, Paul is urging them to keep believing the gospel. Keep trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. He's saying if your hope is in the law to save you or anything other than Jesus to save you, then yes, you are severed from Christ and have fallen away from grace. You don't believe the truth of the gospel. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, this is the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel. The Galatians or anyone else do not and cannot attain righteousness by doing or obeying, but through believing in God's promises in Jesus. It is through faith. That's the hope of righteousness, Paul says. Paul's not just referring to the righteousness that is credited to us when we first trust in Christ. But in that final declaration before all creation that you are His. Righteous and with Him forever and ever. It's all by faith. What a hope-filled word here for the Galatians and for us. We have confidence in Christ. We believe in Christ and we are freed from sin and death and we are His forever, that we're saved through faith, not through work. We have the hope of salvation, the hope of righteousness through the Spirit by faith, he writes. And we eagerly wait, long for the hope of righteousness, the reward for all who are children of God. Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Or Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And nothing else. Not by works, 
Not by works of the law, but by believing in the one who obeyed the law on our behalf. That Jesus actually came and lived the life that we cannot live. That He fulfilled in His person, in how He lived, in the decisions He made. He fulfilled the law on our behalf. So that when we trust in Christ and what He did, and how He lived, and what He did through and on the cross that His righteousness is then credited, counted to us, and our penalty is counted to Him. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Again, Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter. So the response should not be, oh, I'm reading this and I'm freaking out because I shouldn't have gotten my sons circumcised. That is not the point. The point is that circumcision cannot be a basis, even part of the basis of your salvation. It is not the gospel. It counts for nothing. I mentioned last week that a primary evidence of walking in freedom or living under grace is love. We love our neighbor. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 6. It's not works when he says this. Only faith working through love. That's not works that he's talking about. The life that pleases God is characterized by trust in God and in Christ. And love for others is the fruit or the result of true faith in Jesus. What matters, Paul says, is whether you're clinging to Christ in faith. Faith grasps Christ for righteousness. And faith is living and active. It looks like something. It has shape. It has form. And that form, the Scripture tells us, is love. Again, Thomas Schreiner, love then is not the basis of justification, but the fruit of faith. It is the result of faith. That that phrase, faith working through love, is what Paul had said about Jesus in chapter 2 in Galatians 2. 220, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if that's true, if I believe that wholeheartedly, If that is what we know about Jesus, then what should we know about those who are in Christ, who are hidden in Him? Certainly, we would say that they are to be marked by the same character as Jesus. You should be able to tell, and we we ought to use the, the same language that Scripture uses here. You can tell. People of the Messiah. You can tell who kingdom people are. 
because they're reflections of the one that they are hidden within. They're people of faith working through love. Now, there are two places where Paul writes that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter. One is later in Galatians. The other is 1 Corinthians 7.19. And it says there, for neither circumcision nor counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And what are His commandments? John 15.12, Jesus says, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. The remainder of the commands hang on these two, Jesus says. And we're going to get more into that in a few weeks. But faith has a form, Paul's saying, and the form is love. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together, and as we do, let's consider this expectation of love or this evidence of love. What does love look like? What does love look like to those who know you? What love have they experienced because of Jesus, because they know you? As we prepare to take the bread and the cup, would you ask the Lord to help you and help us to be faith-working-through-love people? That we're people of the Messiah, people who reflect the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, each and every time we do this, we take the bread and the cup, we confess, we proclaim your death until you come. We say that we believe your body was broken for us. We proclaim that your blood literally was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We proclaim that you're alive and are coming back, that you were raised from the dead and are coming back for your church. We confess that, Lord. Our prayer as we prepare to take the bread and the cup today is that you would help us to truly believe and be formed by the gospel that we would be faith working through love people. The love that you show to us and showed to us through your sacrifice and your life. The ever-going love that you continue to show to us day after day after day. Help us. Help us to truly believe And then to reflect the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of the King that we serve. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.